brought to you by Charity Mobile, the phone company that shares your values. More information is available at CharityMobile.com. Today I have for you an otherwise forgotten treasure, an article written in French by Father Reginald Gergou Lagrange on what modernism would do to the church if the modernists ever got their way. It was written back in 1947. Father Gergou Lagrange was prophetic in his estimation of what would come. The document can be at times a little dense, so what he's doing here is examining particular claims made by particular modernists and then annihilating them. For those who don't know, Father Reginald Gergou Lagrange was the preeminent mind of Catholic theology in the years leading up to the Council. He taught at the Angelicum in Rome, he taught future popes in seminary, and was one of the strongest voices against modernism up until and into the Council when he passed away. This article was translated and published several years ago in Catholic Family News, who gave me permission to record it for you here. I'll have links to it in my special show notes for today at returntotradition.org. That's the name of this podcast with a .org at the end. Just look for the post for Saturday and the link should be there. Also, check out the Catholic Family News YouTube channel or their website. Anyway, here's Father Reginald Gergou Lagrange correctly predicting everything that would come from modernist theology. In a recent book, Conversion et Grace chez St. Thomas Aquinas, or Conversion and Grace in St. Thomas Aquinas, Father Henry Ballard writes, Since spirit evolves, an unchanging truth can only maintain itself by virtue of a simultaneous and co-relative evolution of all ideas, each proportionate to the other. A theology which is not current does not keep changing, and it will be a false theology. And in the pages preceding and following the above question, the author demonstrates that the theology of St. Thomas, in several of its most important sections, is not current. For example, St. Thomas's idea of sanctifying grace was as a form, a basic principle of supernatural operations, which the infused virtues and the seven gifts have as their principle. The ideas employed by St. Thomas are simply Aristotelian notions applied to theology. And further, quote, by renouncing the Aristotelian system, Modern thought abandoned the ideas, design, and dialectical opposites which only made sense as functions of that system. Thus, modern thought abandoned the notion of form. How then can the reader evade the conclusion, namely, that since it is no longer current, theology of St. Thomas is a false theology? But then why have the popes so often instructed us to follow the doctrine of St. Thomas? Why does the Church say in her 1917 Code of Canon Law, in Canon 1366, number 2, quote, the professors should by all means treat of the rational philosophy and theology and the training of the students in these subjects according to the method, doctrine, and principles of the angelic doctor, Aquinas, and should hold these as sacred, end quote. Further, how can an unchanging truth maintain itself if the two notions united by the verb to be are essentially variable or changeable? An unchangeable relationship can only be conceived of as such if there is something unchangeable in the two terms that it unites. Otherwise, for all intents and purposes, it's like saying that the waves of the sea can be stapled together. Of course, the two ideas that are united in an unchangeable affirmation are sometimes at first confused and then distinguished one from the other, such as the ideas of nature, of person, substance, accident, transubstantiation, the real presence, sin, original sin, grace, etc. But if these are not fundamentally unchangeable, how then will the affirmation which unites them be the verb to be, be changeable. How can one hold that the real presence of the substance of the body of Christ in the Eucharist 
requires transubstantiation if the ideas are fundamentally variable. How can one assert that original sin occurred in us through a willed fault of the first man if the notion of original sin is essentially unstable? How can one hold that the particular judgment after death is eternally irrevocable if these ideas are said to change? Finally, how can one maintain that all of these propositions are invariably true if the idea of truth itself must change? And if one must substitute for the traditional definition of truth, the conformity of judgment to intuitive reality and to its immutable laws, what has been proposed in recent years by the philosophy of action, the conformity of judgment to the exigencies of action or to human life, which is always evolving. Question 1. Do the dogmatic formula themselves retain their immutability? Father Henry Boulard responds, The affirmation which is expressed in them remains, but he adds, quote, Perhaps one might wonder if it is still possible to assert the contingency of the ideas implied in the conciliar definitions. Will it not compromise the irreformable character of these definitions? The Council of Trent, Session 6, par excellence in its teaching on justification, employs the idea of formal cause. Consequently, did it not enshrine this term and confer definitive character upon the idea of a grace as a form? Not at all. It was certainly not the intention of the Council to canonize an Aristotelian idea, nor even a theological idea conceived under the influence of Aristotle. It simply wished to affirm, against the Protestants, that justification is an interior renewal. Toward this end, it used some shared theological ideas of the times, but one can substitute others for these without modifying the sense of its teaching. End quote. Undoubtedly, the, the Council did not canonize Aristotelian idea of form, with all of its relations to other ideas of their Aristotelian system, but it approved it as a stable human idea, in the sense that we speak of everything that formally constitutes a thing, in this case, justification. In this sense, it speaks of sanctifying grace as distinct from actual grace, by saying that it is a supernatural gift infused, which is inherent in the soul, and by which man is formally saved. If the council defined faith, hope, and charity as permanently infused virtues, their radical principle, habitual or sanctifying grace, must also be a permanently infused gift, and from that, distinct from actual grace or from a divine transitory action. But how can one maintain the sense of this teaching of the Council of Trent, namely that sanctifying grace is the formal cause of salvation? I did not say if, quote, one substitutes a verbal equivalent. I say with Father Henry Boulard, if one substitutes another idea. If it is another idea, then it is no longer that of formal cause. Then it is also no longer true to say with the Council, quote, sanctifying grace is the formal cause of salvation. It is necessary to be content to say that grace was defined at the time of the Council of Trent as the formal cause of salvation, but today it is, a necess it is necessary to define it otherwise, and that this passé definition is no longer current, and thus is no longer true, because a doctrine which is no longer current, as was said, is a false doctrine. The answer will be, for the idea of formal cause, one can substitute another equivalent idea. Here, one is satisfied by mere words, by insisting first on another and then on an equivalent, especially since it is not verbal equivalence. Rather, it is another idea. What happens even to the idea of truth? Thus, the very serious question continues to resurface. Does the conciliar proposition hold as true? Through conformity with the object outside the mind and with its immutable laws, or rather through conformity with the requirements of human life, which is always changing. 
One sees the danger of the new definition of truth, no longer the adequation of intellect and reality, but the conformity of mind and life. When Maurice Blondel in 1906 proposed this substitution, he did not foresee all the consequences for the faith. Would he himself not be terrified or at least very troubled? What life is meant in the definition of conformity of mind and life? It means human life. And so then, how can one avoid the modernist definition? Quote, Truth is no more immutable than man himself, inasmuch as it is evolved with him, in him, and through him. See Denzinger, page 2058. One understands what Pius X said of the modernists. They pervert the eternal concept of truth. It is very dangerous to say ideas change, the affirmation remains. If even the idea of truth is changing, the affirmations do not remain true in the same way, nor according to the same meaning. Then the meaning of the council is no longer maintained as one would have wished. Unfortunately, the new definition of the truth has spread among those who forget what Pius X had said. Quote, We admonish professors to bear well in mind that they cannot set aside St. Thomas especially in metaphysical questions without grave disadvantage. A small error in principle, says Aquinas, is a great error in conclusion. End quote. See Pashendi. Moreover, no new definition of truth is offered in the new definition of theology. Quote, Theology is no more than a spirituality or religious experience which found its intellectual expression. End quote. And so follow assertions such as, quote, If theology can help us to understand spirituality, spirituality will, in the best of cases, cause our theological categories to burst, and we shall be obliged to formulate different types of theology. For each great spirituality corresponded to a great theology. End quote. Does this mean that two theologies can be true, even if their main theses are contradictory and opposite? The answer will be no if one keeps the traditional definition of truth. The answer will be yes if one adopts the new definition of truth, conceived not in relation to being and to immutable laws, but relative to different religious experiences. These definitions seek only to reconcile us to modernism. It should be remembered that on December 1, 1924, the Holy Office condemned 12 propositions taken from the philosophy of action, among which was number 5, or the new definition of truth. Quote, Truth is not found in any particular act of the intellect wherein conformity with the object would be had, as the scholastics say, but rather truth is always in a state of becoming and consists in a progressive alignment of the understanding with life, indeed a certain perpetual process by which the intellect strives to develop and explain that which experience presents or action requires, by which principle, moreover, as in all progression, nothing is ever determined or fixed. The last of these condemned propositions is, quote, even after the faith has been received, man ought not to rest in the dogmas of religion and hold fast to them fixedly and immovably, but always solicitous to remain moving ahead toward a deeper truth and even evolving into new notions and even correcting that which he believes. Many who did not heed these warnings have now reverted to these errors. But then how can it be held that sanctifying grace is essentially supernatural grace, free, not at all due to human nature nor to angelic nature? By light of revelation, St. Thomas clearly articulated this principle. The faculties, the habits, and their acts are specified by their formal object, or the formal object of human intelligence, and even that of angelic intelligence, are immensely inferior to the proper object of divine intelligence. But if one puts aside all metaphysics, in order to be satisfied with historical study and psychological introspection, the text of St. Thomas becomes unintelligible. From this point of view, what will be maintained by traditional doctrine regarding distinction not being contingent upon but necessitated by virtue of the order of grace and of nature? On this subject, there is the recent book of Father Henry de Lubac, 
Surnaturel, the supernatural and historical studies, on the probable impeccability of the angels in the natural order, in which he writes, quote, Nothing is said by St. Thomas regarding the distinction which would be forged later by a number of Thomistic theologians between God author of the natural order and God author of the supernatural order, as if natural beatitude in the case of the angels would have had to result from an infallible activity, non-sinning. On the contrary, St. Thomas often distinguishes the ultimate supernatural end of the ultimate natural end, and regarding the devil he says, quote, The sin of the devil was not in anything which pertains to the natural order, but according to something supernatural. Thus, one would become completely disinterested in the major pronouncements of the philosophical doctrine of St. Thomas, that is, the 24 Thomist theses approved in 1916 by the Sacred Congregation of Studies. Moreover, Father Gaston Fissard, S.J., in the Studies, in November 1945, speaks of the welcome drowsiness which protects canonized Thomism, but also, as Peguay has said, buried it, whereas the school of thought dedicated to the contrary is full of life. In the same review in 1946, it was said that Neo-Thomism and the decisions of the Biblical Commission are a guardrail, but not an answer. And it was proposed that Thomism be replaced as if Leo XIII in the encyclical Eterni Patris would have been fooled, as if Pius X in reviving this same recommendation had taken a false route. And on what path did those who were inspired by this new theology end up? Where but one on the road of skepticism, fantasy, and heresy? His Holiness, Pius XII, recently said in a published discourse in El Servito Romano, December 19, 1946, quote, There is a good deal of talk, but without the necessary clarity of concept, about a new theology which must be in constant transformation, following the example of all other things in the world, which are in a constant state of flux and movement without ever reaching their term. If we were to accept such an opinion, what would become of the unchangeable dogmas of the Catholic faith, and what would become of the unity and stability of that faith? 2. Application of New Principles to the Doctrines of Original Sin and the Eucharist Some will no doubt say that we exaggerate, but even a small error regarding first ideas and first principles has incalculable consequences which are not foreseen by those who have likewise been fooled. The consequences of the new views, some of which we have already reviewed, have gone well beyond the forecasts of the authors we have cited. It is not difficult to see these consequences in certain typewritten papers, which have been sent, some since 1934, to clergy, seminaries, and Catholic intellectuals. One finds in them the most singular assertions and negations on original sin and the real presence. At times in these same circulated papers, before such novelties are proposed, the reader is conditioned by being told, quote, This will appear crazy at first, however, if you look at it closely, it is not illogical and many end up believing it. Those with superficial intelligence will adopt it, and the dictum, a doctrine which is not current, is no longer true, will be walking. Some are tempted to conclude. It seems that the doctrine of the eternal pains of hell is no longer current, and so it is no longer true. It is said in the gospel that one day charity will be frozen in many hearts, and they will be seduced by error. It is a strict obligation of conscience for traditional theologians to respond. Otherwise, they gravely neglect their duty, and they will be made to account for this before God. In the files copied and distributed in France in recent years, at least since 1934, some of which this writer has, the most fantastic and false doctrines regarding original sin are taught. In these same files, the act of Christian faith is not defined as a supernatural and infallible belief according to revealed truths on account of the authority of God who reveals them, 
but as a belief of the spirit in relation to a general outlook on the universe. This perspective reflects what is possible and most probable, but not demonstrable. The faith becomes an ensemble of probable opinions. From this point of view, Adam appears to be not an individual man from whom the human species is descended, but who is instead a collective. Thus, from that point of view, it becomes impossible to hold to the revealed doctrine of original sin as explicated by St. Paul in Romans 5.18, quote, Therefore, as by the offense of one unto all men to condemnation, so also by the justice of one unto all men to the justification of life. All the fathers of the church who were authorized interpreters of scripture in its constant sacred teaching have always meant that Adam was an individual man as after Christ and not a collective. But what is now proposed to us is a probability with a contrary meaning to that of the teaching of the councils of Orange and Trent. See Denziger. Further, this new point of view, the incarnation of the word, would be merely a moment in universal evolution. The hypothesis of the material evolution of the world is extended into the supernatural order. The supernatural world is an evolution toward the full coming of Christ. Sin, in so far as it affects the soul, is something spiritual and thus intemporal. Thus it is of little importance for God that it took place at the beginning of the history of humanity or during the course of history. The desire, then, is to change not only the expository mode of theology, but even the nature of theology, as well as that of dogma, no longer considered as the point of view of the faith, infused by divine revelation and interpretation by the church and its councils. It is no longer a question of the councils, but of the replacement of them with a biological point of view, torturously conceived by dim artificial light only to arrive at the most fantastic points of view that recall those of Hegelian evolutionism, which allows Christian dogmas to be retained in name only. This, then, is the way of the rationalist, the school most desired by the enemies of the faith, which reduces all to mere and changeable opinion, so that there is no value retained in them. What remains of the word of God given to the world for the salvation of souls? In the articles titled How I Believe, one reads, quote, If we wish, we other Christians, to conserve to Christ the qualities which are the basis of his power and our adoration, we can do nothing better or even nothing more than accept completely the most modern ideas of evolution. Under pressure, the union of science and philosophy occurs, and the world more and more imposes itself on our experience and our thought as a system linked by activities gradually lifting us toward liberty of conscience. The only satisfying interpretation of this process is that of regarding it as irreversible and convergent. Thus, before we arrived, there was a universal cosmic character, where all leads, where all is felt, or all merge into each other. Ah, it is even the physical role of the universal. Evolution is necessary to locate and recognize the plenitude of Christ by discovering the apex of the world. Evolution renders Christ, and all that he gave in service of making sense of the world, possible and also makes evolution possible. I am perfectly aware of the staggering proportions of this idea, but by imagining a parallel wonder I can do nothing else but note, in terms of physical reality, the juridical expressions and the church's deposit of the faith. I have unhesitantly come to the realization that I can only go in the direction which seems able to let me progress and consequently to save my faith. In the first place, Catholicism deceived me with its narrow definitions of the world, and by its failure to understand the role of matter. Now I recognize that by means of the incarnation of God, it was revealed to me that I am only able to be saved by uniting myself to the universe, and my most profound pantheistic hopes are guided, reassured, and fulfilled by the same thrust into the universe. The world around me becomes divine, a general convergence of religions toward a Christ universal who fundamentally fulfills everyone. 
This appears to me to be the only conversion possible to the world, and the only form imaginable for the religions of the future. End quote. Thus the material world would have evolved towards spirit, and the world to the spirit would evolve naturally. That is to say, toward the supernatural order, and toward the fullness of Christ. Thus the incarnation of the world, the mystical body, the universal Christ would be moments of evolution, and based on this view of a constant progress from the beginning, it would seem that there was not a fall at the beginning of the history of humanity, but a constant progress of good which triumphs over evil according to the same laws of evolution. Original sin in us would be the result of man's faults, which had exercised a deadly influence on humanity. See then what remains of the Christian dogmas in, our th in this theory which distances itself from our credo in proportion to its approach to Hegelian evolutionism. In the above-cited work, the writer said, quote, I have taken the only road that seems possible for me, making progress and consequently for saving my faith. This therefore means that the faith itself only saves if it progresses, and if it changes so much that one can no longer recognize the faith of the apostles nor that of the fathers of the councils. It is a way of applying the principle of the new theology. A doctrine which is no longer current is no longer true, and for some it suffices that it is no longer current in certain quarters. From this emerges that the truth is always in fieri, never immutable. The faith is the conformity to judgment, not with being and its necessary laws, but with life which is constantly and forever evolving. Here exactly is where the propositions condemned by the Holy Office, December 1st, 1924 lead, and which we have quoted above. No abstract proposition can have in itself immutable truth. Even after the faith has been received, man ought not to rest in the dogmas of religion and hold fast to them fixedly and immovably, but always solicitous to remain ahead toward a deeper truth and even evolving into new notions and even correcting that which he believes." End quote. We have another example of the real deviation in the typewritten papers on the real presence, which have been circulating for some months among the clergy. These say that, formally, the real problem with the real presence was not well posed. Quote, the response to all the difficulties that were posed was, Christ is present after the manner of a substance. This explication did not touch upon the real problem. We add that it is deceptive clarity. It suppressed the religious mystery. Strictly speaking, there is no longer a mystery there. There is nothing more than a marvel. End quote. Thus, it is St. Thomas who did not know how to pose the problem of the real presence and his solution. The presence of the body of Christ by mode of substance would be illusory. Its clarity as a deceptive clarity. We are warned that the new explication being proposed, quote, evidently implies that the method of reflection substitutes the Cartesian and Spinozan for the scholastic method, end quote. A bit further on, concerning transubstantiation, one reads, quote, This word is not without inconvenience like that of original sin. It responds to the manner in which the scholastics conceived of and defined this transformation and of their definition is an inadmissible, end quote. Here the writer distances himself not only from St. Thomas but from the Council of Trent because it, the Council, defined transubstantiation as true by faith and even said, quote, a change which the Catholic Church most fittingly calls transubstantiation, end quote. Today these new theologians say, quote, not only is this word inconvenient, it corresponds to an inadmissible concept and definition. In the scholastic perspective in which the reality of the thing is the substance and the thing may not really change, only if the substance changes, by the transubstantiation. According to the current view, where by virtue of the offering which was made according to a rite determined by Christ, the bread and wine became the efficacious symbol of the sacrifice of Christ, and consequently of the spiritual presence, and of their religious being, was changed, not only their substance, and also 
This is what we can designate by transubstantiation, end quote. But it is clear that it is no longer the transubstantiation defined by the Council of Trent, quote, that singular conversion of the whole substance of the bread into the body and of the entire substance into wine, into the blood, the species of the bread and wine only remaining, end quote. It is evident that the sense of the council is not maintained by the introduction of these new notions. The bread and the wine have become only, quote, the efficacious symbols of the spiritual presence of Christ, end quote. This brings us uniquely close to the modernist position, which does not affirm the real presence of the body of Christ in the Eucharist, but which only says from a religious and practical point of view, comport yourself toward the Eucharist the same way you would behave with regard to the humanity of Christ. In these same circulated papers, quite the same is done to the mystery of the Incarnation. Quote, Although Christ is truly God, one cannot say that, because of him, God was present in the land of Judea. God was no more present in Palestine than anywhere else. The efficacious sign of this divine presence was manifested in Palestine in the first century of our epoch. And this is all that one can say. End quote. Finally, the same writer adds, quote, The problem of the causality of the sacraments is a false problem, born of a false method for posing the question. End quote. We do not think that the writers whom we have discussed abandoned the doctrine of St. Thomas. Rather, they never adhered to it, nor ever understood it very well. This is saddening and disquieting. Wouldn't it be that only skeptics can be formed through this type of teaching, since nothing certain is proposed in place of St. Thomas? Moreover, they pretend to submit to the directions of the Church, but what is the substance of this submission? A professor of theology wrote to me, quote, in effect, the very notion of the truth has been put into debate, and without fully realizing it, thus revisiting modernism in thought as in action. The writings that you have spoken to me about are much read in France. It is true that they exercise a huge influence on the average type of soul. They have little effect on serious people. It is necessary to write for those who have the sincere desire to be enlightened." End quote. Surely the Church can not only recognize the authority of St. Thomas in the domain of theology, but by extension also in philosophy. Contrary to their assertions, the encyclical Attorney Patris of Leo XIII speaks above all of the philosophy of St. Thomas. Likewise, the 24 Thomistic Theses proposed in 1916 by the Sacred Congregation of Studies are of a philosophical order, and if these pronunciata mora of St. Thomas are not certified, then how can his theology have value, since they are constantly reiterated in the philosophy? Finally, we have already cited Pius X, who wrote, quote, We admonish the professors to bear well in mind that they cannot set aside St. Thomas, especially in metaphysical questions, without grave disadvantage. A small error in principle says Aquinas is a great error in conclusion, end quote. See the encyclical Pascendi. From whence do these trends come? A good analyst wrote to me, quote, We are harvesting the fruits of the unguarded attendance of university courses, those who have attempted to attend the classes of the masters of modernist thought in order to convert them have allowed themselves to be converted by them. Little by little they have come to accept their ideas, their methods, their disdain of scholasticism, their historicism, their idealism, and all of their errors. If this is the result of those who ha are already formed, it is surely perilous for the others. End quote. Conclusion. Wither the New Theology. It revisits modernism because it accepted the proposition which was intrinsic to modernism, that of substituting, as if it were illusory, the traditional definition of truth, the adequation of intellect and reality, for the subjective definition, the adequation of intellect and life. 
That was more explicitly stated in the already cited proposition, which emerged from the philosophy of action and was condemned by the Holy Office, December 1st, 1924. Quote, Truth is not found in any particular act of the intellect, whereupon conformity with the object would be had, as the scholastics say, but rather truth is always in a state of becoming and consists in a progressive alignment of the understanding with life, indeed a certain perpetual process, by which the intellect strives to develop and explain that which experience presents or action requires, by which principle, moreover, as in all progression, nothing is ever determined or fixed." End quote. The truth is no longer the conformity of judgment to intuitive reality and its immutable laws, but the conformity of judgment to the exigencies of life and of action which continue to evolve. The philosophy of being or ontology is substituted by the philosophy of action, which defines truth as no longer a function of being, but of action. Thus is modernism reprised, quote, Truth is no more immutable than man himself, inasmuch as it is evolved with him, in him, and through him. As well, Pius X said of the modernists, quote, They pervert the eternal concept of truth. This is what our mentor, Father M. B. Schwalm, previewed in his articles in Revue Thomiste, 1896-1898, through 1898, on the philosophy of action, on the moral dogmatism of Father Labergebotner, on the crisis of contemporary apologetics, on the illusions of idealism, and on the dangers of these posed to the faith. But while many thought that Father Schwalm had exaggerated, little by little they conceded the right to cite the new definition of truth, and they more or less ceased defending the traditional definition of truth as well as the conformity of judgment to intuitive being and the immutable laws of non-contradiction, of causality, etc. For then the truth is no longer that which is, but that which is becoming and is constantly and always changing. Thus to cease to defend the traditional definition of truth by permitting it to be illusory, it is then necessary to substitute the vitalist and evolutionary. This then leads to complete relativism and is a very serious error. Moreover, this leads to saying what the enemies of the church wish to lead us to say. When one reads their recent works, one sees that they are completely content and that they themselves propose interpretations of our dogmas, whether it be regarding original sin, cosmic evil, the incarnation, redemption, the Eucharist, the final universal reintegration, the cosmic Christ, the convergence of all religions towards a universal cosmic center. One understands why the Holy Father in his recent speech published in the September 19, 1946 issue of L'Osservatore Romano said, when speaking of the quote-unquote new theology, quote, If we were to accept such an opinion, what would become of the unchangeable dogmas of the Catholic faith, and what would become of the unity and stability of that faith? End quote. Further, since providence only permits evil for a good reason, and since we see all about us an excellent reaction against the errors we have emphasized herein, we can then hope that these deviations shall be the occasion of a true doctrinal renewal, achieved through a profound study of the works of St. Thomas, whose value is more and more apparent when compared to today's intellectual disarray. I know that that was complicated, but remember something here. Modernism is at its core... This, this idea, this theology that says, well, is the theology of Pontius Pilate. What is truth? Because it is constantly evolving. It's constantly changing. It is subjected to the realities, as they were, of the material studies of organized naturalism, of the sciences. And we are just apparently subject our theology, our belief of God, and everything that goes with that, to the material. If a lot of what he read, a lot of the quotes that he included here sounded like they came from the mouth of Francis, that they should. I will revisit some of those quotes to eventually 
examine the philosophy of Francis, the theology of Francis, because there is a systematic thinking there in Francis. It doesn't seem like there is, but there is. And a lot of it shown through that early modernist writings of the 20th century. Despite how dense this was, I hope you found this helpful. Like I said, you can find links to this stuff on returntotradition.org, so you can read this and pay Catholic Family News' either website or their YouTube channel a visit. It's great stuff over there. Anyway, thank you for listening, and God bless. Ave Maria.